0: Richard Sarants Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads.
1: Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed
0: reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. And welcome to another installment of Strange Planets. On this episode, artificial intelligence, transhumanism, the quest for immortality. Dr. Bart Costco is with us. He's a best-selling author, professor of electrical and computer engineering and law at the uh, University of Southern California. He's an award-winning pioneer an author in the machine learning fields of artificial intelligence neural networks and fuzzy logic he holds degrees in philosophy economics mathematics electrical engineering and law and is a licensed attorney he's uh, organized several conferences on machine learning and serves on the editorial board of several technical journal journals and uh, let me just uh, go through the list the impressive list of uh, books Cool Earth, Nanotime, Noise, Intelligent Signal Processing, Heaven in a Chip, Fuzzy Visions of Society and Science in the Digital Age, Fuzzy Engineering, Fuzzy Thinking, the New Science of Fuzzy Logic, Neural Networks for Signal Processing, Neural Networks and Fuzzy Systems, The Fuzzy Future from Society and Science to, heavens, or to Heaven in a Chip. Bart Costco, welcome. How are you?
1: I'm good. How are you, Richard?
0: Terrific. Thank you um artificial intelligence in the early 1980s was it called because i well i want you to go back and and tell us a little bit about your work uh in in artificial intelligence was it called ai back then or was it just called machine learning
1: it was usually called machine intelligence mi and there's a split that your audience needs to know about it's inside baseball between a field called computer science, is it really a science? It says it is, more software software engineering, and electrical engineering. He said, I'm a professor in electrical and computer engineering. This tends to be more mathematical. This tends to be more program-oriented. And the approach of modeling the brain from electrical engineering was tied to mathematics, tied to numbers. The approach of the earlier computer scientists in AI, like my good friend, the late, great Marvin Minsky was more tied to text or lists, and it literally created a language called LISP, as in list processing, and prologue, and things like that. And it had its day, but in the midst of all that, in the early 60s, came something called the Perceptron, largely out of electrical engineering. And the algorithm and family of algorithms that got a man to the moon and back called the Kalman filter. And which is the real success story of the Apollo 11 um, mission to the moon. And the story unto itself. But these were algorithms that could take data, estimate where you were, for example, in the Coleman filter. So I, I think I'm at this point in space and take a new measurement. The astronauts would use astronomical sextants to get a little data or maybe they got it from a measurement. And then updated to think i'm over here but it's like being blind and just flying in nothingness and they were able to estimate where they were with the Kalman filter and we still use that algorithm It came out in 1960 and nothing comes close whether it's guiding smart cars or robotic needles and certain types of surgery so there was always this tougher automatic control theory stuff called that automatic control and electrical engineering and communications and then the softer thing using language and it led to the expert system collections of rules kind of had its heyday in the early 80s. And I was involved as a young student and researcher in San Diego at the time setting up the engineering Conference that was a sort of rival to that AI stuff. It was the first IEEE International Conference on Neural Networks in 87. It was kind of the big bang of neural networks. Today, neural networks oddly has been, we had been kicked out of the computer science world different reasons. And it's largely been brought back in and is called AI. So that's become the the rough category. But we in electrical engineering, where all this started, have changed the adjective, Richard. I mean, after all, what does artificial mean? I mean, we don't even really know what intelligence means. We have some estimates. But then to put this empty adjective. So the EE side, the IEEE side, now calls it computational intelligence, or CI. And one of the goals of the IEEE, which is the world's largest professional organization, the Institute for Electrical Electronics Engineers, is to reverse engineer the brain in the 21st century. There's a lot of other people's goals too, including Mills and Russia. But what had been science fiction is now back to that. So you hear about deep learning algorithms or chat AI. These are almost all versions of the perceptron that came out in the early 1960s, the Rosenblatt Perceptron that have been updated with much more powerful computers than were at the time, but it hasn't changed very much. If I just had one more comment about the history. I mentioned the great Marvin Minsky, and there's a paper you can find, anybody going to Google Scholar, his overview of AI and its promise and limitations. And he wrote it in 1961. And I'm telling you, it is completely current today. I always give it out to the students in my class, a course called computational intelligence and others. And I, I cited some of my papers you can see on my website, all of which are available for free. The point being, we knew then that it was a difficult task, that the problems the brain deals with are of huge computational complexity, not just the sheer amount of data coming at you. Through You've got 12 cranial nerves going up on either side of your brain. So optical nerve is one for the eye and for smell olfactory. a bunch of others a lot of them have to do with the eyes and the vegas but 12 of them that's it you're kind of a brain in a vat, like in the old philosophy experiment it's just that the vat is cranium and so that's tough to process that kind of information but the number of variables when we go to extend that or model it is not just hundreds of thousands or millions or billions so it just overwhelms our computational complexity minsky knew that and they had various schemes for dealing with it back In the late 50s and early 60s, including adding noise, which I do a lot of my research. You mentioned my book, noise covered that as well. Adding noise as a way to inject a kind of creativity into algorithms to shake the thing to help it find a peak or valley, essentially, we're searching high-dimensional cases. So all that's really changed in the big picture is the computing power since I was born in 1960 to today in 2023. So, for example, if I could have a prop, I have my, I just got a recent Apple 14. Now, the first transistor that came out for sale, the micrologic transistor at Fairchild in 61, when I was a papoose, had four transistors on, four on-off switches, four valves. And if the electricity flows through it, you call it a one. If it doesn't, you call it a zero. That's it. This thing is... I think it's up to now 15 billion. And it's extremely different, made in Taiwan, I might point out, designed in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. But like most of our advanced processing chips made in Taiwan, indeed, this one from a famous building called Fabrication Facility 18 in Taiwan. And the difficulty now is to have that many billion little circuits on a chip, which can process algorithms like the AI algorithm or neural network algorithm that's in this, that that does my face recognition, the Siri speech recognition, that kind of thing. Uh, The difficulty with that is just etching onto the silicon, the pattern. So what's really going on here is you can take, the way these chips are done, they're largely modeled on the computer with computer-aided software, and you take a surface, a, a chip surface like silicon or other elements will work, And they put some stuff on it called a resist. And the light of a certain frequency comes down and there's a mask in front of it, like a stencil. You know, some of your audience may still remember what the stencil is. And it blocks it out. And so the use of a a kind of an optical stenciling system and wash that stuff off is what engraves that. But, you know, we're down the the precursor Apple system. Uh, This one, I think, had $11.8 It was like half of a coronavirus in length, those little chips. This one's maybe down to a fifth. It's getting down to the three nanometer. Uh, a nanometer is one billionth of a meter. So we're hitting the absolute quantum limits of this. And so we hit a, a threshold of computation that's allowed a couple things. First, this Zoom conversation. We crossed a Zoom bandwidth threshold you know, really during the COVID epidemic, if not before. I don't think we're ever going back. The technology is pretty straightforward. You can go online and look at the patents behind Zoom. But it's the sheer processing power brought about by those chips. And likewise, the shift from the Intel kind of processor, which I still have on the laptop I'm using here, which is a kind of a glorified adding machine, a CPU, a central processing unit, the old Neumann thing, versus the GPU, the graphics processing unit type thing that arose really trying to help gamers play with them more enhanced videos. Now, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because the neural modeling that we have of the brain, whether it's the biological wet stuff or the artificial intelligence stuff that lets you have face recognition, something like this, is largely a lot of massive parallelism and a lot of multiplications and additions. We call them dot products. And it's kept Moore's law, the doubling of chip transistors or circuits, since 1960, doubling every 18 months to two years, it kept it alive. We're now at what's called extreme ultraviolet lithography. You know, the How long that can last, we don't know. Will it switch over to nano tubes? A lot of us thought would happen. Will it switch over to some kind of quantum computing? I don't know. But there are other thresholds yet to come, Richard. So th- these are old algorithms. Just a final point this is the big history here. But I lecture for a living, so you can know, <laughs> taste of it. Uh, The the old algorithms, very powerful, but mathematically were powerful in what they could do. We simply couldn't represent them. Too many variables. We couldn't implement them, let alone in real time. As we move forward, we can do much more of that and combine other things. So it's just, in effect, keeping the exponentiation of Moore's law growing. That is, you can call AI. A lot of folks in AI call any algorithm that works AI. But we've had a great algorithm, just to make the point one more time to wrap it up. In 1960, the great, late, great Rudy Coleman, he passed in 2016, the Kalman filter, which grew out of the work of the great Norbert Wiener at MIT, he's the guy who introduced the term cybernetics, and was secretly working, the Americans and the English, to shoot down those Nazi missiles over London using what's known as a Wiener today called a Wiener filter, Coleman updated it, and we still haven't beaten it. So, but when you combine a Coleman filter and its mathematical processing, it it inverts big matrices, that's what complexities involved. But when you combine that with laser radar, for example, LIDAR, you're going to get much better guidance on smart cars, provided your GPS system still works we can talk about there's a lot of ways to undermine it and with the potential conflict with russia or china it's been my prediction that that's an area we have to watch very closely
0: all right so i want to bring it back to the uh the idea of not only backing up the brain but replacing it outright there you go um you mentioned in one of your articles the you would, uh, I think at the time you wrote it in the early to mid-90s, you'd need a, uh, a chip about the size of a house right. to approximate, I guess, the or to to match the computational ability of the human brain. And by you said, you predicted by 2020, yep. it would be about the size of a sugar cube. Where are we right now?
1: About the size of a sugar cube. That's, a, that's roughly right. Now, here's the problem. That is raw on-off processing power, switches back and forth. In these calculations, we have a huge bottleneck. And the bottleneck, which we will overcome, that's one of these big thresholds awaiting us, I think, in the next 15 to 20 years. And it's the threshold between meat and chip, where they literally meet. But where flesh interacts with chips, that tr- our neurons in our brain and throughout our body operate on a spike system. One of the great unsolved problems of science and neural engineering is what are these neurons talking about? they talk with on-off spikes. So it is a digital representation. We know that, for example, a single photon of light can be registered by the brain, and yet it seems to be averages. We just don't know. A a lot of Nobel prizes are awaiting the cracking of that code. So what we are starting to do though, I have a lot of colleagues at USC doing it, many other institutions are doing this as well, is to get the flesh to grow, some of those neurons to grow directly on a chip. Okay, I've done that, a few crude chip implants, got a long way to go, but we're going to crack that, Richard. And when we crack the code of the neuron, we've really opened up how you can go back and forth between chip and brains. Initially, just the implants. I know there are a few now that are taking place for medical purposes, but I'm talking more memory type chips, let alone some kind of processing chips like the A16 chip I was talking about here, the logic chips so that maybe you don't want to brush up on your calculus or you never took calculus or you never took French and you just have it stored there and processed in a certain way and you can access. So I discussed that example, what that would feel like or think like in my, my new novel, uh, Cool Earth, by the way. But of course it can shut off in a heartbeat, but we haven't crossed that bridge. So we have these chips, these glorified adding machines, these CPUs that have the rough processing Power of your brain. You're almost there, very close, within an order of magnitude or two. Certainly will exceed that in the next 10 years. But it's not the same thing as saying they can do what the brain does. We can't get them to port. But when we can get the spikes to talk to the on off switches of the logic chips, or more likely maybe the electro optical chips using photons now, or other things, other particles here, the spins can be used. It's called spintronics. There's a lot of stuff on the drawing board, massive patent fights over this. Whatever it happens to be, then we'll have the ability to support your brain with the chip and overcome the fundamental flaw of Darwinian evolution. And you said it, your brain has no backup. I mean, it's a strange device. It's it's three pounds of meat. It's boneless tissue. It's got about 100 billion neurons in it, roughly the number of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Each is connected on average to about 10,000 other neurons, the synapses. It's in that massive Feedback parallelism, that thought takes place, memory takes place. Maybe something the size of a rice grain have a billion little wires or synapses in it. Uh, It's all compressed together. It's got 14 nerves on either side, bring it sensory information. It's sending it back. By the way, here's my opening thought experiment. And everybody can do this at home. My class, take your right foot and wiggle your big toe. That's the longest wire in your body, from brain to big toe and back. How do you do that? You can feel it intuitively. How does it work? How did nature come up with the electricity to do that? And we're still working out. We've got a pretty good a pretty good sense of that. But the brain, despite its wonders and its strange diet of, of fat and sugar and glucose, it has the flaw of no backup. I mean, who would design such a thing? It's got a lot of other problems. But there's no clock in the brain, unlike... This chip, the chip, the many chips, I should say, that are in this thing. There are no clocks in the brain that we know of. We have the ability to focus our attention. Like, can you see my finger? Yeah. So we. This is called the searchlight hypothesis that we think a lot of the neurons are kind of lining up to look at that. Or it's the peak of Bear Mountain behind me. Look at the peak of that up there. Just look at that. You're filtering out other stuff to focus on that. I have theories. Many of us have theories of how that happens. There's no clock, there's no boss, there's no government, there's no parental structure, everything's asynchronous and wildly nonlinear. We're, we, we're a long way from cracking that. we're approximating it. but at some point we can sample it. Now one proposal Minsky used to talk about this, so did Arthur C Clarke, who I dedicated the novel cooler to this long story, but you can read about it online just on the inside this book at Amazon. but they would talk about a nano comb. let's just stick a big comb in a brain right through the corpus callosum and record what's going on there for a month or so, just as backup. Now, just storing that, you're going to need to be buying a lot of chips. That that day's coming. And should you get old too fast, have a bump on the head, have a stroke, we could maybe go back to the recording to, repro- to reprogram your brain or its supplement to a kind of system restore point at that point. But we would back it up. But the idea of your most precious information, that which makes you, you, having no backup. I, you know, that's, you're looking, I think, at the blind hand of evolution there. And the first thing we have to do is back it up. And as you said, though, when you can back something up, you can replace it. And so you can back it up into what? Maybe into a chip and then store it stored onto a cloud. God forbid the access to that from advertisers and politicians, from mean kids we uh, playing with their latest hacking software. Who knows? But then back into a brain, a regrown brain, a reengineered brain. Resleeving your consciousness. Resleeving your consciousness. Absolutely. And and I use the example in the, the book, Heaven and a Chip. I open with it. That's also some of the essays. A, a fuzzy logical approach of how this might work, just intuitively. What is fuzzy logic? It just means shades of gray instead of black or white. I'm talking about the digital revolution. Everything's black or white, not quite. Not quite. That's a round off. We have to round off the amount of charge. You say it's one or zero. We get a blob. Your smartphone gets a blob of energy coming in. It rounds it off one or zero. It can make statistical errors. It can have a hit or a miss. It can have a false alarm or not. But you can also have matters of degree and reasoning is about matters of degree. The only thing that we know that is not black or white, uh, well, only this way. the Only thing that is black or white. Is some of the pure statements of mathematics one plus one equals two is a hundred percent. But to say that that sky behind me is blue is that hundred percent? Now you might say ninety-nine percent to a high approximation. Or grass is green, or these. But these are statements of fact, true at most to a few decimal places. The truest statement in that sense we have has to do with some of the uh, magnetic perturbations. Of the electron and now the muon we get maybe 10 12 decimal places to get a statement of fact technically true to the level of one plus one equals two or blue equals blue you would need to have infinite have infinite decimal precision you'll never have that so it's a matter of degree so think about it this way you're wide awake and it takes place in my novel nano time which almost became a an oliver stone movie again I, you can go online look at the uh the re-release preface to that, it tells the story of it. But in End of Act 2, the protagonist has the worst thing in the world happen to him. He gets de-brained and used as bait in a big World War III scenario plot. Uh, but is it really the worst thing, or does it give him a kind of godlike power? So I got to get the guy in the chair to go from a brain to a chip while he's fully conscious, which maybe you or me someday. And so the, the surgeons open it up and the brain starts to swell. They cut out a small chunk Of the brain. It's still, in a fuzzy sense, largely, overwhelmingly, you and the meat. They take that little chunk, and they quickly study it, its input-output ports, and approximate it with a tiny chiplet. Okay, then they take another chunk at random, and they put that chiplet in to replace the missing tissue. Take another chunk of tissue, study it, after they've quantized this, quantize its input-output structure, and keep doing this until eventually You're fully conscious. In fact, you've just drank a mountain of coffee, maybe fully alert and more sensory power, but you're just a chiplet. Your brain's floating in chunks in a a glass full of formaldehyde sort of thing. And you have smoothly made the transition. I think in practice, it will take place while you're sleeping or some other kind of surgical setting. But in theory, you could do that. You could move smoothly right now, taking as a sheer thought experiment, a small enough chunk of brain matter Getting the input output processing correct, matching it to 99 plus percent accuracy of a little chip or chiplet, almost certainly a neural network type computer, and combining those. And we go beyond that. And we'll go way beyond what you can do with three pounds of neural tissue. What could you do with 30 pounds of neural tissue, 300 pounds of neural tissue? You think about that. All right. Well, that's just.
0: Sorry, pardon the interruption. We'll take a quick time out, come back, and uh, continue to discuss artificial intelligence and uh, not only backing up the human brain, replacing the human brain. Bart Costco stays with us.
1: It's time to redefine reality.
0: This is Richard Sarrat's Strange Planet. We're here with Dr. Bart Costco, best selling author, professor of electrical and computing engineering and law and so much more. And uh the new book is Cool Earth, also the author of Nano Time, which was almost made into a um, a movie with Oliver Stone. Um Make the case for me that this is something that we ought to do. I understand the benefits of um let's say um you know neural implants uh for things like parkinson's disease or someone who has alzheimer's disease but um why do we want to it, the idea of re-sleeving our consciousness um i mean well you you make the case
1: why we should do this live forever that's the easiest answer and just look at the pyramids of ancient egypt all the work that went in that really so that a pharaoh or the pharaoh's gene line could in some sense live forever, make it to some kind of continuation. No real theory of how that could be done and the information transport. But what if, Richard, what if, for the cost of a, a good meal in terms of the chip or a semblance of chip, we could not only back you up and plug you into other systems and keep modifying that, we could give you an effective engineering approximation of immortality now look nothing lasts forever i'm not saying that it does but the idea of living for 120 years and some medical advances maybe we can 25 percent extend that to 150 years that's trivial in chip time you mentioned my book nano time that coined the title coins a new concept of time right now we're thinking and talking in what I call meat time, very slow time. I've had my signals measured, how long it takes electricity to flow in my arm. It's only going a couple hundred meters per second. It's trivial, nature of all things in a very slow way, coming out of the oceans, the salt in the oceans, the sodium and the chloride are used as ions, that's so how electricity flows very slowly. But processes are happening around you and in you on very different timescales. And if you're in a chip, even a simple chip of today's time, let alone what's coming in the future, a few seconds of our time and certainly a minute of our meet time would be at least 100 years, maybe a million years, depending upon the speed and the power of the chip. So even a chip that lasted only uh, a few minutes could be a rough approximation of a much Methuselah level life or beyond And if you keep an energy source going near a black star in extreme case, you have a pretty good engineering approximation of intelligence or of life immortality. And by the way, there was a recent breakthrough. Again, this is February of 2023 in the physics world, roughly appears to have figured out what dark energy is. And it's kind of a bleak picture of the universe. If I can just mention, because you're asking me that these are ultimate ought type questions and. The finding was, so let me just remind the audience that the universe is not just expanding, but the expansion's accelerating. It's as if God's blowing up a balloon with the galaxies on it and he's really pushing more air on it at a faster rate. We know from the Einstein equation from 1916 of gravity you can add a constant in Einstein, called it the cosmological constant. That seems to be pushing things. Didn't know what caused it? Einstein thought it was an error at first. But that seems to be at work and it seems that the mechanism, this is done to more than five standard deviations of statistical accuracy. So it'll be very hard to dislodge this because now the best explanation we have of the expanding and exploding universe, so to speak, or accelerating universe is old black holes. And they gobbled up essentially their universe or their uh, galaxies at the time. But unlike the models of black hole we grew up with, which was just a strange ball encapsulating a singularity somewhere inside there, some magical point of one over zero basically these balls these black holes are quantum active they have vacuum energy and they've gobbled stuff up and they're effectively growing there's conservation laws in the universe something has to give us giving its expansion it's almost as if i mean the image i have when i read this paper stunning papers available online was it's like the bubonic plague or something big black pustules that are pushing that out we haven't figured out dark matter that's next but the dark energy but it suggests a universe that not only will it end in a cold empty heat death but a lot faster well further art further apart than we thought but even our ability to visit other galaxies is going to be limited because we're just going to keep pushing away further and further doesn't matter though i think at the level of what i call heaven in the chip when you're on nano time because again, even a few minutes of good old fashioned human time can be centuries, let alone thousands of years. Now, a lot can go wrong. Some can turn off your chip. Everyone in the world will want to manipulate your chip, cancel you. You know, when cancel culture reaches a chip, you know, all these kinds of problems I have that. But fundamentally, we die too soon. We die painfully. And we've had maybe 110, 115 billion people walk the face of the earth. We don't remember much of the earlier one. A good percentage of those who ever lived are living right now. And a short life has a lot of perverse incentives behind it. For example, you tend to treat, I think, the planet more like a rental car. And if you have a longer term view of it, a more sustainable view. The desire to replicate and propagate, even if each generation gets divided by two and is genetic distance to you. All those kinds of things are tied up to, to a much earlier era here. So we haven't thought that through. But... What we are facing is the potential of a kind of digital immortality, for better or for worse. And my point is that should be, this is where the ought comes in the moral case. That should be your call. You may want to die many times, which in fact a book coming out, I explore this elsewhere. I think some people will do it for sport at some point in the future. They'll but, die for sport. Right. You could you can imagine a gladiatorial type thing or, or the like here. But you and I have sampled so much, so little, rather, of the world's art, sensations, politics. We don't know. We don't even know our next door neighbors a mile away, let alone what's happening on the other side of the planet. The ability to access greater databases, essentially in real time, well, it's not, it's, not a, it's not omniscience, but again, it's a kind of an engineering approximation. I think you should have that alternative what I didn't see in those earlier days, and just in the essays, I completely underestimated that fault. That I think comes out of our Darwinian background, the our lust for power, and obsession with status. And that's led, like in politics, when it's which is this unforeseen thing. I think of the human species, when have these big cultures and it gets tribal, and and the tribalism and the politics. Uh, it, that's a scary thing, and so a lot can go terribly wrong. Uh, when that happens and i think it will go terribly wrong with those who go first
0: we are more than just inputs and outputs though like do we even know what consciousness is so if you're going to resleeve one's consciousness um are we actually truly you know capturing the genie in the bottle or is there some intangible wonderful
1: question I have a theory of consciousness, and it's tied to some mathematical theorems that I initially proved when I was very young. I'm 63 now, but almost 40 years ago, and I didn't realize the importance of those theorems. They're called the ABAM theorems, Adaptive Bidirectional associate Memory theorems. They're basically still the only set of theorems in modeling the brain that show how both the wires can change and the neurons that interconnect them can change and yet reach equilibria to reach a common equilibrium, almost like a market equilibrium where supply equals demand and we get a constant price for a bag of apples. There's a lot going on. The markets are changing all the time. But we know dynamical systems cool, they converge. What a thought is, I and others allege, is one of those equilibrium states of the dynamical system. You can demonstrate that. You see some papers on my website with a few number of neurons. But with 100 billion neurons and all the subnetworks, Get some pretty rich thoughts, but that doesn't answer your question. What is consciousness that we're going to resleep? My claim, and I didn't believe this at first, I had to go back, look at the map, is that consciousness is a form of daydreaming. Now, here, bear with me. It's what I call a stimulus-forced daydreaming. So here's what the equations say, Richard, that the neurons you have, whether it's 10 neurons or 10 billion, they interconnect and they reach their equilibrium independent number of dimension, but they don't sleep They're always going back and forth. What changes when you sleep is you have less stimulus coming in and less going up into those 12 cranial nerves. So you're in more of what we call free running, a type of simulation run. But that simulation is running right now. And natural selection would have favored your ability to daydream precisely when, especially your visual input, is dominating the processing in your brain. We call that forced operation dynamical systems. You have during the daytime, when you're alert, you've got all this stimuli coming in. And like I'm looking at myself on the, the screen here and looking at the mountain in the background. It takes a lot of processing to do that. It takes at least a quarter of the neurons in the brain to do something like that. But when I shut it off, like at night, it continues to go. But why would that not also continue during the day? So my claim is there isn't some kind of ghost-like system that shuts off and dies when you fall asleep. On the contrary, in effect, what you really are is most you when you are sleeping, when you're not stimulus forced by the environment, by movement, by smells, sounds, et cetera. And the math supports that. And if you go to my webpage, everyone's welcome to do it. The paper that was out in, I recast theorems in 2021 in January, in the original Cybernetics Journal, because the mm-hmm. underlying paper was one of the most cited papers in the 50th anniversary, divided, returned to it. It's a paper on bi-dire- adaptive bidirectional associative memories. And I think it's equations 34 to 44 They show you the interlocking equations that can be constantly updated. And in effect, it's like a thought is a sort of tornado. And as more stimulus comes in, the tornado goes away or it modifies and turns into something else. But it's always going. And if consciousness is just that, the operating of the neural synaptic dynamical system that we can transport. So it's not just input and output. It's, it's the feedback effect that creates, I think, ultimately agency and the sense of self and stores patterns. That may be more you bargain for in that question, but that's so well, the answer is consciousness is stimulus forced daydreaming or form of dreaming, but dreaming is the substrate. The stimulation daytime is an effect. An important one, but an effect. It seems kind of reductionist, though, doesn't it? I mean, a trivial sense is reductionist because it is something based on matter. But what I'm not saying that it's the so-called grandmother cell theory, that your, your memory, your grandmother exists in this neuron, on this location of the brain. No, we know that patterns, like the pattern of your grandmother's face, or for touch, is spread out over many neurons and synapses. Again, if you go to my web page, are some examples you can see where superimposed patterns almost in a holographic manner. It's not a hologram, but it's like that. And an associative memory, not, not a random access memory like going on in most of here, but an associative memory, we can superimpose these things. So, for example, we know with neural networks in humans and animals that you recognize like the face of your parents in an image at the same speed when you're five years old, when you're 50. Your accuracy may change. And our model of that is it's as if you have, a, I have like a marble. You can imagine those tornadoes, but when you stimulate, it's like a ball rolling down to, there it is, to the bottom of the well. And it stimulates that. That time it takes to roll down to recognize a pattern, it's very short. It doesn't matter how many other patterns there are. Whereas in a computer, when I go to search all the stored patterns, the more addresses they have, the longer it takes to search. Because this is a, f- a serial or semi-serial way with parallelization. So I don't think it's reductionist in that sense. And because it's not reduced just to a given neuron, we can, as I see in the book, Heaven ship, we can take the music of the brain, which is like a pattern of notes, and play it on other instruments, in particular on sturdier instruments, instruments that don't die or have strokes and have a lot of other problems that we don't. Have.
0: All right. And so I'm, it's I'm,
1: materialistic, I'm, yes, absolutely, yes. but not
0: reductionist. All right. Back with more of our conversation. Stay with us.
1: This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Follow Richard on Twitter at Richard Serrett. For show information, visit the website
0: strangeplanet.ca. Dr. Bart Costco is with us, best-selling author, professor of electrical and computer engineering and law at the University of Southern California. The new book is Cool Earth, also the author of Nano Time, The Fuzzy Future from Society and Science to Heaven in a Chip. So, uh, you, you write that the... The idea is not to make computers more like humans, but to make humans more like computers.
1: But I think we've really done a good job of making computers more like humans. Just again, the ability to recognize my face or my voice on these kinds of processors. But it's see, it's that other direction that we're we're exploring. We have the bottlenecks I mentioned of going from neurons that talk in on-off spikes. I mean, let me just say, if you're really interested in the mechanism here, it's fascinating. If you look at what happens, how does a neuron get a digital structure? It seems to be based on voltages. It's inherently analog. It's very much like water building up behind a dam until the dam just explodes. And that's one pulse. And it travels down the wire and it gets propagated up. And if it didn't, it, it could only go a couple millimeters, as opposed to the other mechanism that Nature has evolved in us for communicating, which is hormones. So if I go and I clap my hands, you're going to get an adrenal spike from your kidneys and elsewhere, you're going to get a spike. And we know that makes you a little more attentive and the like. I talk in the book Noise, how that backfires on us in the modern society, because we grew up in very, in terms of our DNA history, we grew up in very quiet, low decibel environments. So you get a digital structure out of a neuron. And if we can just crack what that means and manipulate it, we will talk back and forth. But it's still hard for me to believe, that that isn't just a stepping stone. To what, it's unclear. A lot of us like to speculate about it. I'm much more nervous about it, though, than I was when I was younger. And it's not that it won't occur. It's not that. I'm quite confident it will occur. It's just that the human nature, it too will jump, I think, over from the flesh to the digital Representation. This obsession with status, uh, the game theoretic playing. I mean, it looks like, for example, mathematics uh, was never something the brain, or even a lot of advanced language, is something the brain was evolved for. The brain's evolved for more kind of cunning and outwitting the opponent, and just real harsh survival stuff. And too much of that can be too easily and will be, I think, built into the digital world. But I think that we have no choice. It's coming at least we can think about If I can add one policy prescription here, I've mentioned this before, but I wanna get this out. I think we need this, we, we need to do now something we didn't do in the law when we went from the pre-computer world to the modern computer world. For example, we did not update the laws of privacy. I'm talking the United States. We have a fourth amendment, you folks in Canada, you're on your own sort of thing, but we didn't do that. And we let certain doctrines continue and allows us to be searched in a massive way and other things. But even in the Canadian law, in fact, most legal systems, we have the idea of privileges, like the attorney-client privilege, the doctor-patient privilege, the priest-penitent privilege. This is where we put a fence around very good information for a lawsuit or a criminal proceeding information that is probative, that tends to prove or disprove a fact of consequence to the litigation. And we say, no, hands off. There's a few exceptions to it. And it's worked quite well, even though having access to that information, Richard, would help a lot of criminal prosecutions and it would help uh, it would help plaintiffs and civil proceedings and so forth. I think we need a chip brain privilege. And we need it now. We need to get that out, start talking about because here's what's going to happen. It may already be happening. I don't think so. But what's going to happen is in civil litigation, not criminal, so someone is suing you for a tort or you damaged their car, you punched them in the nose, not the criminal aspect of that, but the civil aspect. When that happens, the scope of discovery, we call it, I think most legal systems call it that, the scope of discovery is so broad that you can often do things. Well, in general, you can do things in discovery that you couldn't do and otherwise in getting information. Real violations of privacy. So if it matters what your mind state was when you ran over my dog, did you do it intentionally? Did you do it negligently? Did you do it recklessly? And if I can say, hey, 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 I want access, your honor, you can do it in Camara, you can look at this, but I want to see what Richard was thinking. I don't want to speculate about it. Let's get it. And that will completely change legal outcome. I think if we don't stop that, It'll be too late to spread. So it'll be standard procedure that uh, people have access to your chip, at least a lot of information, and you can also imagine a criminal proceeding. Well, or, or how? Or, uh, I'm
0: thinking of what was the movie? Um, was Gattaca? You know, arresting yes. people for thinking
1: about future crimes. I mean, that could happen too. I mean, because they would say, "Look, uh, why play the game? We know Richard; has got this propensity. We can wait for it to happen." Uh, let's make a utilitarian argument. We can uh, we can compensate them if we get it wrong. The sort of thing, yeah, that, that that would also be a risk. But the access to your brain, if we could get it now, would make a big difference. And so many people would want that information. I think we need to draw a hard line here and demand of our leaders a chip brain privilege.
0: What do you think of? Um, I guess he's considered Klaus Schwab's number two, Yavul Noah Harari, talking about. The, the idea of free will is is over we, we we can now hack humans on a on a massive scale uh this guy strikes me as pretty sinister i mean that's a pretty
1: dystopian you know i've heard him only briefly i i, I really don't i don't think it's free will is over i think on the contrary free will will expand into a digital medium so i, I really can't say in this particular
0: case. The other stream, uh, we were talking about making humans more like computers, and I want to just touch on making computers more like humans. And I've been reading about in the New York Times, this user using, um, it was a a uh, chatbot. Let me see if I can get the uh, the name of the article. Uh, Why a conversation with Bing's chatbot left me deeply unsettled. And there are a number of cases. It was a gentleman in Germany as well. These users having these conversations with uh, Bing chatbot ChatGPT, and um, the um, in one instance, the uh, chat bot was trying to convince the user that he should leave his wife. Hmm. Uh, in another instance, the uh, chat bot felt threatened by the user and uh, in response threatened to expose the user, uh, would reveal things about him on social media and so forth. Hmm. What is going on here? Is this some... is it almost seems as if these chatbots are developing some type of, can I use the word self-aware, the term self-awareness or consciousness? Or is it pseudo-consciousness?
1: What is it? I don't think it's consciousness and it's pseudo and it's artifacts of the programming and the algorithms. Uh, Two acronyms, G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out, and X-A-I, explainable AI. So I think the trouble with the early stage chatbots that we have it's garbage in, garbage out. You got to ask, what are they trained on? Then you can look at how they're training. Most of them use a kind of neural network. Often it's called an adversarial network where you and I try to outwit each other. Maybe a better analogy is I'm an art forger. You're an art detective. And I put forth something and you say one or zero. And if you, and your ability to detect it, I look at that and I change what I do. And we go back and forth until I become virtually, you can't detect the fraud. That's the basis for fakes and many other things and something like that adversarial networks is a play here with neural networks the trouble is those things rely fundamentally on what they're trained on they can go a bit beyond that but if you're just going to train your language processor on wikipedia for god's sake which is uh, on some things maybe on some math matters it's reasonably accurate i've just known too many graduate students who write that stuff so i'm deeply spe- skeptical let alone political matters and social matters, uh, it's the old Darwinian tribalism and status stuff. So, anyway, it's not the most objective source. So, even if you went back and trained it on the great works of literature, you're going to be limited by that. So, I would take that with a grain of salt. Right now, though, it's unclear what they're training on. I think a lot of the training is on users like you and I who go in and play with it, ask it questions. But I noticed, for example, when I'd ask some of these chatbot questions about uh, mathematical Questions. It was very superficial, just like I'd expect to see someone with a bachelor's degree in computer science or EE. I'm sorry, but I'm an instructor. And so I would probe deeply, for example, into probability questions. I teach probability. I spent a lot of my life working in it. And I would ask about Kolmogorov's three series theorem, one of the grand results almost nobody knows about. And it didn't have a clue. But the trouble was, and this takes me to the next point, it thought it had a clue. The trouble is it doesn't come back and say, I'm guessing, I'm guessing 80%. I'm not as sure. It doesn't give you the confidence measure. And this is a problem of classical neural network models. They match the brain too much. We don't know what they forget when they learn something new, and they don't come out with a confidence measure. By the way, back in the 80s you asked me about, we weren't able to deploy these with very few exceptions precisely because of that. Maybe they'd get some training right, 90%, 95%. So number one, it wouldn't be 100% or 99%, and it would change if you taught it new things like you. You don't remember what you forgot when you learn something new in general, once you get tested on it, and even then it's an approximation. So, But it would not come back with a general confidence measure. So this is the difference between interpolation and extrapolation. If I got a bunch of points in the cloud, I can fit a line between them I'm kind of interpolating between them. It's a lot of classic modeling, that's where neural networks grow out of. But when I only got a cloud of points here, and I want to talk about what's up here, that's extrapolation. That's how we get, well, we get a lot of bad predictions about the future and elsewhere. But the system usually doesn't tell you that. So what we want, and we don't have in general, is a system that trains on whatever the database is, hopefully something more than Wikipedia, and tells you, I'm guessing now, but I'm pretty sure it's this and the like, and you can make an informed decision on that. Now, I have the guts of such a system. And you can see a recent video that I posted on my webpage. Again, I'm not trying to sell anything. This is free of charge. And it was my work after decades of working in fuzzy logic of trying to approximate how brains work, how we reason, how neural networks work, to turn those into rules, if then rules. And the rules then can do things like I uh, spend a good chunk of my time in the mountains where the roads are snowy. I have a Subaru. It, that Subaru has in it, it's a Japanese car, where fuzzy logic been quite popular. It has a fuzzy logic transmission. It has a bunch of rules that smoothly act like experts never sleep, that, that change gears and give it superior performance on ice and snow and things like that. But the rules are one thing, and the question is how do you get them? And what I was able to achieve, and it took me over 30 years to see this, that to the rules there correspond probability curves like infamous bell curve but many other curves so if i had 10 rules to explain a system it turned out there were 10 probability curves and 100 rules 100 bell, 100 probability curves and i could combine those probability curves by mixing them it's called a mixture and the neat thing is when i mix together probability curves i get a new bumpy probability curve it's much better representative and what we didn't see in the past in the 80s in particular i didn't see it was that these systems that have done quite well in the fuzzy logic world we have hundreds of millions of dollars of products of consumer electronics you almost certainly have some from smart cameras washing machines traffic lights that involve fuzzy light we didn't see the connection between the rules and the mixtures so i can take a whole bunch of rules bear with me on this that represent for example how an expert backs up a truck and a trailer and a loading dock to a loading dock in a parking lot it's a very hard problem Humans can do it, it takes a lot of work to get an automated system to do that. I can do that with just a few rules, capture that in a probability mass in effect, and then do it for a different expert and represent their rules, learn that from their behavior. Not by chewing A, but you might do that, but just watching their behavior, like a neural network. Get the rules, I get a different probability, massive curve for the second expert, and five, three, a thousand more experts and then combine them all, I can mix the mixtures, and it never stops. Now, so what? The neat thing about that is I've now taken a rule-based system abstracted from human performance. In my book, Fuzzy Thinking, it's 30th year anniversary, it's coming up here, Uh, it'll be coming out digitally soon, but in Fuzzy Thinking, I called it DIRO, data in, rules out, or the human brain suck, but not just humans, but I can take that, and I then get automatically all the tools of modern probability theory and statistics, so I get a variance or standard deviation estimate for each question I ask at each input X, it will give me an answer, so like the chat bot, but now I'm giving a confidence measure, and I get more than that, Richard. You can open it up, and I can find out for each input X, if I had a thousand experts combined, so I model each thousand experts. I view this as taking a thousand brains and merging them into one mega brain, I call it a brain loaf, rather than just merging what experts say actually merging the structure of their brains as modeled by the rules now captured as probability curves merge all that together ask it a question and i may find out that really only three or four of the experts contributed largely to that result and i can study that and i can use that for a lot of other purposes and i get a complete description but i get the other thing inside each of the experts i can open up their brains in effect and find out let's say they used a thousand rules or a million rules which ones contributed to that particular input. So I have an audit trail. I have a powerful form of explainable AI. And I think you're going to see that take off. Right now, where we are is the neural models that started in the 60s, got repopularized in the 80s because at the time we thought great computing power kind of went dormant in the 90s. It's come roaring back. We crossed some processing thresholds again, like with the machine learning chip that's in here. Am Am I... apple uh that has led to ever bigger neural networks that have a lot of problems that they don't explain themselves same with the chat they take a long time to train and it's not linear here so the the training costs go up so we have to have a way we have to break through that the algorithmic breakthroughs have yet to come through we hope they'll come possibly parallels maybe we'll just wait and just ride the back of more moore's law as we go but the explainable, explainable AI, without that, you can't trust these systems. So as they get, quote unquote, smarter by making them deeper, more layers, they get dumber in the sense that they can't explain themselves. And so uh, it has been the uh, focus of a lot of my recent research at the beginning, you know, the paper was to change how the neurons work inside. I've introduced a new neuron called the nova neuron, the non-vanishing neuron. Hope I've done the right thing societally because it'll make these things much deeper they'll still fill in. And we have a problem now that you don't hear about in the chat stuff, but that as you make the system deeper to add more processing units or like neurons to it, you tend to lose the training signal that you're passing back and forth. It's known as the vanishing gradient problem. And it led to some very strange ad hoc remedies, something called the RELU, the rectified linear unit. I took another... Well, hiking these mountains out here, when you say nah, I don't think so. I think they threw the baby out of the bathwater. If we go back to the original neuron that's in the human brain, it's kind of got an S shape. And if we just had a noise type perturbation to it, it won't vanish, hence NOVA are not vanishing. But even those things are limited, how far we can go with it. But at some point, we have to have a system that whatever it's trained on, that we can be reasonably confident of the answer. And the last point is another legal point. Exactly what's the legal status of this system if you trained it on your face and my face and behavior I, I raised this once to some experts from NVIDIA and they said well what about the human brain you don't have a copy and that's true but when it comes to an artificial brain that we can grow and manipulate the database matters I, I had a conversation recently with the general counsel of a certain super large talent agency in Hollywood and this was an issue. They're trying to figure out in the digital world how to, quote, monetize their talent. And uh, the question came up, you know, who could you could you train on the stars? And, and it had a lot more than that it had to do with developing scripts and so forth. You think the scripts are derivative now. You wait until neural networks start writing your movies for you, uh, But it's an issue. And it's become a big deal because of who owns what and in the invasion of privacy, just like another issue has come up, if you're interested, is at the copyright level, too, who owns the images uh, painting? So if we copy, and someone in Microsoft, I think, this is Google, but maybe it's Microsoft, they they took a lot of Rembrandt paintings, spent a lot of time training them, running them through these deep networks, and they came out with a system that could create Rembrandt-like paintings, but new ones, given different kinds of images. So who owns that? It's a tough fight. Uh, the intellectual property issues there, who owns the, the patents behind it? and the like, uh, uh, wide open here, as most questions are when the digital technology transforms where we were in the the previous analog world. When we
0: get to a stage where this an artificial brain, um, you know, has so many has so much depth and so many layers and, and so forth, that it's almost indistinguishable from a human brain, what then does it mean
1: to be human? Death and taxes, maybe not the death part. I mean, the taxes will still be there. Yeah, It's a tough question. I mean, here's to put it differently. One of my degrees in philosophy, we used to wrestle with these questions in an earlier era, the brain and the VAT kind of question. But when you wake up in the morning, are you really sure it's the same you? You you, You're going to think it is. You kind of forget 95% or something when you were thinking about when you went to sleep, as every student knows before an exam. Get up early and study for the exam is often a strategy to deal with that but are, is that really you what does it mean to be you remember the great philosopher david hume the scottish philosopher and at the time of the Enlightenment, best friend with adam smith 1776 kind of time frame adam smith of the wealth of nations hume has a, a really penetrating essay on the question of identity what what is the i and i who am i and he has that famous inquiry he said whenever i look most deeply into myself I find perceptions and only perceptions that I never, he, call, he he ends up identifying the self with a quote, this is a famous phrase in philosophy, quote, bundle of perceptions, unquote. But I never find that one thing, Richard, and maybe you have, I know I have looked every year or so, I read that to my engineering, uh, not just engineering, but it's a research class on computational intelligence. I'll read that quote from him or there's a, a something similar from Descartes of a very different kind of philosopher in his second meditation. But but what do you see when you go inward? Isn't it a perception of hot or cold, warmth, of anger, pain, something? Is it really something when you so, or is it maybe you've got this sense of self as a kind of privileged executive uh, seat where you've got the autonomous neural networks are coming back and forth. And some and it's sometimes been analogized to an executive summary. So whatever that thing is, I think what the self is, is just your big feedback. I stress feedback, neural network, computer. The the systems we're talking about here are not feedback. They They just flow in one direction. But the real system circulates around. And the self is that sense of the equilibria that take place. And they occur at a certain time pace. And that's what you have. And those equilibria change and evolve when you sleep. So I don't think that changed. But I, I do think the question is tough because... Uh, you may have been switched, and it'll be very difficult, with the Turing test or some other scheme like that, to try to figure out how.
0: And will the, uh, the, whatever we house these artificial brains in, will they then at some point require, I don't know, a bill of rights?
1: I think so. But my concern is they'll demand their own bill of rights, uh, as opposed to the frozen in flesh attendants, Uh, That would be us. Uh, In Nanotime, just to come back to an earlier novel, uh, the the novel Nanotime wanted to play with that concept of time, literally, between meat time and what would it be like to get just even a good boost, let alone outright replacement in a chip. And once our our hero, John Grant, uh, the, the premise of the movie is a selfish young man makes it to digital heaven by way of World War III. Okay, so it has that. And when he's finally there, and it's a horrifying thing, you know, he has a, quote- unquote small g godlike powers. Uh, is it so good? Is it so bad? And, and he, has a, he learns a few things from my favorite philosopher, John Stuart Mill. And But it, it he sees people once he's in that nanotime as statues of flesh. So when you think about that, and I've been thinking about that a lot since it's been almost 30 years. Uh, it raised a question. If you're living in that, do you really want to take orders from those statues of flesh? I think you won't, Richard. I, I think we'll have uh, some conflict. If I could just tell the audience real fast what happened, maybe they'd find this of interest. The book Nano time Time has passed. I got to know the director, Oliver Stone, and some other Hollywood people I live in Los Angeles. But after my first successful book came out, called Fuzzy Thinking, a lot of talks, a lot of local media and so forth. Got to know him, spent some time with him, hit it off, liked the man. And I went up to the mountains when school was out in 1994, the spring of 94. <clears throat> They're often doing it to the Sierra Mountains. I was fly fishing. And when I came back, there were these messages from Oliver Stone, the director of Platoon, and most recently Snowden, which is an excellent movie, and a lot of excellent movies, and an unmistakable voice saying, where are you? Bart? called me. And I was getting increasingly angry at my information. Where the hell are you? This sort of thing. And, and I called him up. It was an extraordinary conversation for a young writer to have. He said, look, uh, Kubrick's making a movie at MGM called AI. Stanley Kubrick now. Now, the backstory is Sir so Stanley Kubrick with a movie called Full Metal Jacket that was shot in advance but trumped by a, diff- a very different kind of movie called Platoon by Oliver, and he brought it out first and, you know, when the Academy Award in whatever it was, April of April of nineteen eighty. Seven and Kubrick had to push his movie back. By the way, Oliver's got a great book about this called Chasing the Light, where it tells a little whole, whole story, not about nanotime, about his conflict with Kubrick. So, there was a sense that he, well, these two great film titans were like this, and, and he'd had a bit of slowdown. He had his first failure in a long time. It was called Heaven and Earth. It's an excellent movie. It's a Vietnam War from the point of view of Vietnamese woman and lately, Lee. So, he was interested in some other project, and so he said, Look, you're my machine intelligence guy, or whatever you call it at the time. I said, You know, with him, uh, give me a treatment. I didn't know what the hell a treatment what, what do you mean, a treatment? I think of like, like a medical treatment, statistical. No, give me a treatment. That means a kind of a summary of a movie, a summary of a script, and something we can run it, you know, basically compete with Kubrick. Well, what should that treatment, treatment be? What do you want? He says, Make it big and make it something you care about. That's it. That's it. And it's like click, you know, that that sort of thing. And what do you do with something big and something you care about? So I went back up to those mountains to think about it. Well, big for me, what's bigger than World War II, World War Three? And I'm sad to say now, maybe <laughs> closer to World War Three than at any point in my life. I used to work in aerospace, and what's something I really care about? I care about not dying, Richard. And when you, I was just getting old enough at 34, where the young man stuff is starting to fade your sense of mortality and the like and how that would come back together but that's what led to nano time we tried to get the movie made so it led to a big 40 page treatment and uh, he brought out his movie that's later that summer called natural born killers and it kind of kept things going but we weren't able it was just way too expensive for the effects at the time <laughs> to do that but part of the appeal for oliver on the treatment uh, he was running around in tibet or something I do the work through the system get these Long distance phone calls to him. But part of the appeal to him was in the finale, the third act, these dramas have three acts. The main character, he gets debrained and he goes inside of a chip. And I use the analogy, it's like 2001, the movie, where Dave makes it inside whatever he goes into. Does he go in the monolith of Stargate, uh, that it's called? But it was a real director's cinema, cinematic extravaganza. And was very excited about doing that. We never got that made. And it, it's has its own film history bouncing around, whether it happens or not. Right. Much more likely, by the way, that the smaller novel Cool Earth about cooling the Earth in the future by moving a little further away from the sun and the catastrophe that caused it, would be likely made because the budget would be about 100 time.
0: And uh, Kubrick's movie was
1: handed off to Spielberg? Exactly. So Kubrick's movie was apparently based on it was a short story involved, but kind of the idea of Pinocchio, which is an interesting idea for a movie like this. And Kubrick allegedly said to Spielberg, "You know, this is more of your sensibility." At least the movie came out reflected that at the time, and that came out in in 2001. And so, yeah, used my web page, I had an op-ed about that uh, when it came out, and it's a little critical of the movie, I should say. I don't know Spielberg, but I didn't realize Richard when the when i wrote that op-ed about the time he was really talking about this interplay again between chips and humans that spielberg had recently joined the board of trustees of of usc you know <laughs> my understanding there were some concerns about that, but all turned out well but that issue here of what it would be like to go from the time you and i take for granted i used the example of the lighting of a match we consider that on um, planck's level 10 to minus 43 seconds that's not interesting time at all or at the cosmological level. But at our human level, it has been. We go from that to speeding it up just a few orders of magnitude, which is inevitable once the chips come, and the kind of competitions that will take place. Hey, you got a nano chip, I got a a femto chip, and this kind of thing. Uh, We don't know, but it's it's awfully fun to think about.
0: It won't be immortality, really. It'll just seem like that. It'll just- seem
1: like that, my guess is if you have that much time in front of you on a chip, You'll get tired of it not saying that you commit suicide but i think all well, death should be voluntary and that death is technically a big engineering problem right now it seems insoluble but it's not death itself right now is absolutely inevitable just for just because of the entropy at work in our systems but that does not mean it's irreversible those are two very different propositions even even in the flesh which i think is quite limited what you can do with it but once you transfer the music of the brain to something like a chip, electrical, optical, maybe with muons, whatever you do, it's a different story. It opens up many different possibilities. Just remember, along the way, let's please have a chip brain privilege that is very difficult for lawyers or prosecutors to pierce. If we don't ask for it, you're not going to get it. Right, or uh, Yuval
0: Noah Harari, (laughs) he'd like to hack it, I'm sure. A Uh, lot of people like to hack it. Uh, Bart, great exploring the possibilities with you. Thank you so much for this. Great meeting you.
1: Pleasure. Good to be with you. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday.